Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Ruth chapter 4 today. We first, um, first praying through teaching and where to go and the direction God has, where he's leading us and taking us, and I felt drawn to the book of Ruth, and I don't really know why, because I haven't studied it in depth. And then um, I read it, and I was like, oh, we could just teach this in one Sunday. Like, we don't need much time for this. It's a great story from beginning to end. It feels like it's it's a good study. And we're at week five, and I'm like, we could have done six or eight or ten weeks on this. So I'm looking forward to this week and next week. Next week, the conclusion of this is just amazing. Um, but we're going to be here in Ruth chapter four uh, this morning. Um, I'm going to use a baseball analogy, and I hope this translates for us. Um, so let me give kind of a general idea, then I want to get a little more specific with my analogy. There are, if you're like me, which I believe most of us are, you have moments in your life that um, you're ashamed of, moments that you don't think are true to your characters. Anybody have moments like that? You can look around and see. This is all of us. We have moments in our lives that if that was the only thing people knew of us, we would have no friends. We would have, uh, we'd be in jail, those types of things. If it's just this micro, these moments, right? Now, I'm so thankful that I didn't grow up in the day and age in which we live right now. Because there are things that I did, if they were on video, I wouldn't be up here. Like I, I would, if, if there was a record of some of those things, I, this would not be my profession. Um, so I'm thankful for how the Lord has ordained the days and times in which I would live. Uh, but we have th- those moments. And on the flip side, um, there are some moments in our lives that actually speak a better word of us than we actually are. Like, do you have those moments too? Um, for some of us, it was that wedding day uh, because you looked amazing. And then from then, you, you don't look the same. And so, so you have your wedding pictures in your house everywhere, right? But not that one. Uh, maybe it's social media and you know how to curate and how to um, edit photos and parts of your life, right? Because it makes it look a certain way. And so we have these extremes, but somewhere in the middle, I think, is where kind of where we find our character, right? So a number of years ago, uh, New York Yankees are um, one of the best teams in baseball, which pains, it just hurts to say that out loud in front of people, and I, uh, Yankees, I can't do it, but um, they have a shortstop by the name of Derek Jeter, right? Uh, Derek Jeter, um, decent ball player, not a huge prospect, comes and, and comes on the scene, and he starts making this defensive play that comes to be called the Jeter, where he ranges to his right side between third base and his shortstop position, backhands the ball, and then he jumps in the air and spins himself and throws a one-hopper to first base. And he does this constantly, right? And so this becomes the play that he's known for. Then there's a moment in the playoffs where a random uh, situation, balls hit to the right side of the field, it gets into the outfield, the throw comes in, uh, Jeter happens to be in the right place at the right time, the ball bounces, he's on the first baseline, catches it, and the backhand flips it to the catcher who tags the runner out at home. And now all all Sports Center and Baseball Tonight can talk about is how great of a defensive shortstop Derek Jeter is. Now, he's the best to ever play the game, and because this is what sportscasters do. Everyone right now is the best ever, right? They're the GOAT and whatever. So Jeter does this. Here's the problem. Here's the deal. Derek Jeter is not that good of a shortstop. 
We can have a conversation all day long if you want to about that. Uh, in this age of saber metrics and, and defensive metrics, he's not that good. You want to know why he had to make that play to his right side? Because he had no range to get there and just make a normal defensive play. So he had to make it look great. But he has these clips to make him, uh, that if that's what you know of him, you think he is the best to ever play. Maybe there are movies for you and you've seen movies. There are actors who, um, if you've only seen one of their movies, you think they're the worst actor that's ever graced the screen. But if you've seen another movie, you think opposite. Maybe, uh, maybe you watch The Office. Anybody watch The Office? Sinners. But if you watch The Office, uh, Jim and Pam is this ongoing story and the romance, and we all fell in love with what's happening there. And so you've got Pam Beasley. And then how many of you are Friends fans? Yeah, you were nervous after the first one to raise your hand. Because you know that you watched that without your mom and dad knowing when you were little. And so... Um, and then, uh, then you've got Joey, right? Joey, could I be wearing any more of Chandler's clothes? Went Joey. Uh, so he starts this new sitcom, and they want, they want to cast Pam Beasley as his wife. But the producers of the show realize no one's ever going to believe that Joey and Pam got together. And so we can't have these two in the same show together because uh, Pam Beasley, she will, uh, Jenna Fisher will always be Pam Beasley. That's who, that's who she is. Because in that moment in time, that's who we know her to be. So we all have these blips and pieces of our lives that create a narrative about who we are. We're going to look at a passage of scripture here in Ruth chapter four, and I, I want to transition to this. We do the same thing with God. When we study the Bible, particularly as Americans, um, we study it for information, right? I want to know the facts. Give me the information then I can make decisions. We, that's why we, it's why we run towards things like commandments and while we run, uh, we love the book of Romans, many of us, but narratives, right, story is hard for us because it just takes too much mental energy and emotional energy to handle story. And so what happens for us with God is we have pieces of God and then we create this story about who God is. And those pieces are true, right? They actually happened. But that small picture is not actually who God is. Uh, on the extreme side of, of goodness, and then on the extreme side of, of what feels like anger, and we miss it because we don't have the whole narrative story. If you've ever tried to um, tell somebody about somebody else, have you ever had this moment where you're trying to tell somebody maybe about a spouse or a kid or an old friend, you're like, hey, maybe this would help, and then you tell a story about them? Is that, have you had that moment? Hey, they are, they're just, they're fun and they're hilarious and they're just, they just, they don't care what people think about them. And everybody's like, okay, you're like, maybe this story will help. And then you tell this story like, oh, he's that guy. Yeah, 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 we know that person. This is why narrative is so important. It's why the book of Ruth is important for us. Now, next week we're gonna see why it's so drastically important for us, but this little microcosm I think is gonna help us. Let me put it on context for us. Ruth um, uh, is a Moabite. She lives in Moab. Uh, Moabites are really disgraced people to the people of God who live in Canaan. Naomi and her husband Elimelech are in Bethlehem in Judah in Canaan. There's a famine in the land. And so they leave Bethlehem and they go all the way down to Moab. Um, when they get there, uh, 10 years or so into it, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, passes away. And their two sons pass away as well. Now, they had gotten married, the two sons, to Moabite women, and so Naomi is left with just her two Moabite daughters-in-law. 
She wants to go back because she hears there's food back in Bethlehem. She begins to make the journey back and she tells the girls, don't come with me. Stay with your family here. It's not gonna work out for you. Orpah, one daughter-in-law says, that's a great idea. I'm just gonna stay here. And Ruth says, no, no, I'm going with you for your people will be my people. And where you stay, I will stay and your God will be my God. So Ruth, the title character, makes her way back with Naomi, back into Bethlehem. They're looking for two things. They need food and they need family. They've lost both on this journey. And so God uh, begins to weave story throughout and characters throughout to meet those needs. And we said that's what's called the providence of God. And that God sees the needs of his people and he meets them. He sees and he meets them. But because God exists out of time and space, God has planned for his provision before we were ever even created. He plans his providence. He began it in the past to be ready in the present that it might bless the future. We said that his providence is his continued care and governance over all of his creation. Then last week we said that God performs his providence through his people. The places that we've been placed is so that we could provide God's um, gifts, his, his, the needs that he meets, he's going to meet through us. We've used this quote, it's going to come in uh, pretty big for us today, by A.W. Tozer who says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, like Derek Jeter and like Jenna Fisher and like uh, characters, oftentimes what comes into our minds when we think about God is just a blip in the overall narrative of who God is. But that moment, that understanding, that upbringing, whatever that is, creates for many of us a distorted view of who God is. It's distorted. But what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, and we're gonna see that lived out here um, this morning in the scripture. So we'll be in Ruth chapter four. Ruth chapter three, um, Ruth needs a redeemer. She needs someone, this is gonna fly in the face uh, for a lot of us in our cultural context, she needs a man. I ain't got a man, I got a man, see? She needs a man, and uh, she needs a man to provide for her because in that context, that's how life was. And so the man, the husband, the father, was the provider and the protector and the defender of his family. Ruth is left without, so she needs it. There had been put in place by God in his sovereignty, in his divine plan, uh, something in place for it. It was called a kinsman redeemer. So I want you to think in concentric circles, you've got the individual Then you've got a family. Individual makes up the family. A group of families make up what's called a clan. And then the clans make up what's called tribes. That makes sense? So we got all the way down. We, in our world, uh, in the United States, particularly in the South, we we focus on the individual. This context focuses more on family and clan than it does individual. So the way this would work was called a kinsman redeemer. The next closest living male relative who was available inside of the clan, not just the family, but outside of the clan, would step in to provide for the needs of someone who was in need. It could be financial, it could be relational, uh, whatever it was. So Ruth is looking for a kinsman redeemer. She meets a man by the name of Boaz who says, hey, I I happen to be one of your kinsman redeemers. We learn that he's just one of. And in Ruth chapter three, uh, they have a conversation in the middle of the night And Boaz basically says, hey, are you gonna do this or not, Boaz? Because you've been praying that God would spread his wings over me and protect me. Uh, I I think it's supposed to be you. Are you going to do this? 
And then he drops this bomb. Ruth, I would love to, but there is a redeemer nearer than I. He says, there is a kinsman redeemer who is closer in relationship. In that clan, he's closer to you than I am, and he gets first dibs. And we know the character of Boaz, so he's going to do the next right thing. And he tells uh, Ruth, hey, go back to sleep, um, but tomorrow, first thing in the morning, I'm gonna, I'm gonna resolve this issue. We're gonna figure out. And he says, if this other redeemer wants to take you, then God bless him, and he will have you. But if he doesn't, I guarantee you that I will be your redeemer. So uh, Ruth goes back home in the morning and that's where we pick up in Ruth chapter four, verse one. Now, the author says, Boaz had gone up to the gate. So this is the gate of the city. This is where all the important transactions would happen. It's where land is bought and sold. It's where marriages uh, most likely would happen. Uh, A lot of important things happen at the city gate goes to the gate and he sat down there and behold. Now we've read this in almost every chapter. The author of Ruth, this is their way of saying, pay attention. But remember how we were just kind of blown away of all the, it just so happened that Ruth was in Boaz's field and it just so happened that he came back home that when she was in the field. Pay attention. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by just so happened that this nearer kinsman redeemer walked by right where Boaz was sitting. So he's at Times Square, and it happens to be in the place where this other man walks by. And so Boaz says, turn aside, friend. Uh, Friend here in the Hebrew is a way of saying Mr. So-and-so or Mr. Somebody is the idea. Now, if you've been paying attention, the author of Ruth likes names don't they? We know everyone's name. Like we, we know people who were just there for a second and died, and we know their name. For some reason, these names are important. And yet, in Ruth chapter four, the author doesn't give us this person's name. He's just Mr. So-and-so, which tells us something immediately. This person isn't who we need him to be. He's just some guy. Boaz knows his name, but the author says, so uh, he says, hey, so-and-so, hey, buddy. You know, in church, when you're like, I know we've been going to church together for seven years, but I have no idea what your name is. So you're like, hey, brother. <laughs> that's, that's what's happening. Uh, he says, hey, turn aside. Here, hey, pay attention here and sit down here. And so the man turns aside and sits down, which tells us he probably knew him, so he sits down. They're related. Verse two, Boaz took 10 men of the elders. We're gonna come back to this next week. Remember, 10 men of the elders. The elders here just means of the older men. The word is bearded. So he grabs um, Gandalf, 10 Gandalfs, and he brings them um, here, and he tells them, hey, sit down. So they understand that at the gate with the elders around, something significant is happening. So they sat down, and Boaz says to the Redeemer, listen to how he describes this, because he is a salesman. Uh, Naomi, you remember her. She's come back from the country of Moab. She's selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here because you needed witnesses for these transactions and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you want to redeem it, feel free, redeem it. But if you don't want to, just let me know that I may 
uh, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, so therefore I will come after you. Hey, there's this great plot of land. Um, you know Naomi. Um, it's, it's hers from her husband Elimelech, and, and it's for sale. You're the next closest redeemer, so if you're gonna redeem it, you're more than welcome to it. But if not, I guess, I mean, I guess I'll take it. You know, no big deal. It's fine, I'll suffer um, with that. Then uh, verse five. I'm sorry, yeah, continue. If, uh, for there's no Masachi to redeem it and I come after you. And then the man says, oh, okay, then I will redeem it. This sounds like a great deal. I get this land, part of my family, and uh, in the process you get Naomi. But here's what's great about Naomi. Naomi's not having any more babies. And Naomi's older. And so she's gonna pass away soon, so that means you don't have to deal with all of that for generations. You essentially get the land, is what the deal is. And so the, the nearest redeemer says, that sounds great, I'll, I'll take the land, and then whatever happens with Naomi is fine. And then Boaz, sweet Boaz, says this. Oh, by the way, Boaz says in verse five, uh, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, uh, I forgot this, you also acquire Ruth. You know the Moabite? The widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, which is a very fancy way of saying, and there's gonna be lots of children running around. Hey, by the way, yeah, the land's great. Ah, I forgot. Listen, there's one detail I kind of forgot to mention. Uh, you also get Ruth. And Ruth's younger, and Ruth wants to have babies. And so it's not like you're just gonna get to retire and go to the beach. Like, just, you're gonna have to do this. And this man says, uh, verse six, the Redeemer said, oh, then I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. To which Boaz said, all right, if I have to. You see how Boaz set him up? Um, we know a lot about Boaz's character, but we also learn how he bought the field that he has now. Like He's good at his job. So this is what happens. Verse seven. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off or took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, Boaz took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are, circle, underline, highlight this word, witnesses. You are witnesses. This day that I have bought the hand, bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Those are his sons that had passed away in Moab. Verse 10, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Um, I would never suggest saying that you bought somebody to be your wife. Um, those young guys, don't. Don't do that. Don't say that. Uh, again, context is important here of what's happening. So he's saying, I've, I've done what needed to be done as the kinsman redeemer for this reason, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses, there's that word again, this day. So he's saying, you've all witnessed this. You've seen what's happened. They've watched this story unfold. Verse 11, 
Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. We have seen. We testify. So do you remember when uh, Naomi and Ruth come back? And what we learn is that the whole town is stirred because they are back. And it's not stirred because it's amazing. It's stirred in the same way that you read the magazines at the checkout um, at Publix and Walmart. Because this, this feels scandalous. I might need to know something about this so that I can tell other people to be praying for them. I might need to know uh, about this. And so uh, that was then. Now fast forward to all that's happened and listen to their words. May the Lord make this woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, more on that in a second, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, which is another name for a part of Bethlehem. And wouldn't you know that the word Ephrathah means fruitful? In Ephrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Do you feel kind of the Disney ending coming to this? Do you feel it? It was awful in the beginning. And now they're making their journey, and now it's amazing, right? Everything's amazing, and they're finishing each other's sandwiches, and it's, it's awesome what's happening. You feel that, like even the words the author is like, this is, everything's going to be all right. It's where we're going. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So the story is turning to this epic ending. Now, at this point is where the credits will begin to roll in the movie theater. You're packing up your stuff and all the snacks that you smuggled in. Um, you're trying to put that away so no one knows you brought in cheaper candy instead of buying their candy because you couldn't take out a loan in time to buy the Skittles. And so now um, you went to Dollar Tree and you got to pack it all up. And so you're packing it all up and you're getting your kids ready. And, uh, and this is when the credits begin to roll. Now, next week is the part of the movie where um, something comes on the screen in the middle of the credits, like, what is happening? That, that's next week. So this week is kind of the end of the movie. But at the end, we I want to pay attention to a few things. They change their tune, their witnesses, they've witnessed. Now, they haven't just witnessed that day. They've witnessed the scope of the story. They're from this area. They know Naomi. They knew Elimelech. They knew uh, Kilion and Malon. They, they, they know the story. They know where they ran to. They know where they've come back from. Uh, they've met Ruth. They didn't like her at first because she's a Moabite, and, uh, and Jewish people don't like Moabite women, uh, but they've grown to kind of like her, like she's working hard in the field. Boaz is respected, and he seems to really have um, found some kind of love for her, and so they've started to like her. They've witnessed the entire thing. So that's their um, scope of history. But more than that, they've witnessed more than that. These are Hebrew Jewish people. And what we've lost in our culture is the ability to tell stories that matter. We've lost it because we just want facts. I want, uh, give me the best, the highlights of it. Uh, give me the Instagram post. Give me, uh, don't give me TikTok. That's ridiculous. But give me, um, give me whatever it is. And so we're thinking, give me, I want the highlight. I want to know these things. It's why, it's why many of us grew up watching SportsCenter because we want to see the top 10. Like, I don't care who won the game. I just want to see Jordan dunk on somebody. Let me see that. And so that's, this is what we want. But Jewish culture is founded on story. It's rooted in narrative. And not just written, but oral traditions. So they're telling stories. They're not watching stories. 
They're telling stories. And so in our culture, for stories to make their way through generations, everything gets all kinds of twisted. But because this was how they had to communicate truth, they made sure that details were carried down. So these witnesses didn't just witness uh, the past three months, didn't just witness the past 10 years. They are witnesses of the hand of God for generations. And because of that, this moment in time is more than just this moment in time. Does that make sense? They are seeing this through the lens of this. And that's why they rejoice and they say these things. These witnesses mention Rachel and Leah, and then they mention Perez, Tamar, and Judah. So I'm gonna, this is the genealogy I want to show you. Um, I hope it helps us and just to pay attention the best that we can. I couldn't fit everybody on the genealogy. It's, it's way too big for that. But I want you to understand what's happening. I'm going to tell you some scriptures that you might want to write down to go back and read these stories later. And it's why, please hear me on this, it's why we cannot unhinge the New Testament from the Old Testament. We cannot. Because if we don't know the Old Testament, we get a really jacked up view of the New Testament. And we get a really thin, surfacey view that doesn't have the weight to carry us through the storms of life. We have to, we have to have it all. So uh, Father Abraham had many sons. You were one of them. I'm not going to do that joke again. But Father Abraham, uh, he's the father of the Jewish faith. Um, he's the one that God chose and said, through your lineage, through your family, I'm going to bless the world. And like God does, I was talking to somebody this morning, like God does, um, he only provides what we need right when we need it. Right? Like he's not going to give it to you early. It's just right when we need it. So Abraham and his wife um, go many years without children. A lot of things happen. Uh, a lot of things happen that you should probably read when there's just grown-ups in the room. That happens um, in Genesis. But ultimately, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, have a son by the name of Isaac. Isaac's name means laughter because they were so old, all they could do was laugh about having a child. Literally. And so they laughed and they get Isaac. Uh, this is where God then uh, tells Abraham to take Isaac up a mountain that he might sacrifice him. And Abraham's like, yeah, but this is the one you gave me. And a whole thing happens. God provides a ram caught in the, th in the thicket, which reminds us that God has providentially provided for us. But this is Isaac. Isaac uh, marries a woman named Rebecca. A lot of things happen there, but marries a woman named Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca give birth uh, to two sons, Jacob and Esau. They're twins, uh, not twins, they're brothers, and the firstborn would have birthright. So they fight over birthright. Jacob tricks his father Isaac into giving him the birthright instead of Esau. So this is Genesis 25 through Genesis 27. You can read that story. Again, it's in the Bible. So wherever you think the Bible is just full of just clean, um, good Ned Flanders people, it's not. These are real gritty, grimy stories, and we see the goodness of God there. Don't Google Ned Flanders. I'm sorry I said that. We continue now. Um, they give birth to Jacob and Esau. Jacob ends up with the birthright. Immorally ends up with the birthright. Keep that in mind. And God takes what the enemy meant for evil and he turns it for good. Jacob um, runs from Esau because Esau's mad that Jacob stole the birthright. Uh, Jacob runs out into the wilderness, meets a man who's related to him by the name of Laban. Laban has two daughters. Jacob falls in love with one of the daughters. He falls in love with Rachel. She's beautiful. 
Uh, she's everything he's ever wanted in life. And so he falls in love with her and he makes a deal with Laban. I'm gonna work seven years and I'll, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? And Laban says, absolutely. Uh, but Rachel has a sister by the name of Leah who all we know about Leah, the Bible says that she has weak eyes. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but... Um, but apparently she wasn't as attractive, wasn't the same kind of person that Rachel was. So Laban, uh, knowing that it would be a while before uh, Leah could get married, tricks Jacob, and Jacob marries Leah. Like in the middle of the night, switches the daughters out. <laughs> I'm telling you, read the Bible. So that happens um, there. And then Jacob wakes up and he's like, oh, no, well, hold on, this is not, no, uh-uh. The deal was Rachel. So he goes back to Laban, and Laban's like, oh, you're right. Listen, seven more years, and then you can have Rachel. <laughs> if I'm Jacob, I'm like, no, man, I'm out. I'm sorry. There's got to be someone else. But he works for seven more years, and so then he gets Rachel. Rachel is barren for most, most of her life. There are two uh, maidservants in the mix here. Uh, I know, I can't. Uh, they have more kids with the maidservants. Rachel gives birth to two sons, uh, Joseph and Benjamin. You know Joseph, the one with the technicolor dream coat. Joseph, this is Joseph. From Jacob's line come the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's Rachel with Joseph. And then Leah, the one he didn't want to marry, actually gives birth to seven kids, six boys, and a daughter uh, named Dinah. Uh, Leah uh, gives birth to these boys, from these two lineages come again, the 12 tribes of Israel, which then gives us the 12, it's 12 apostles, all kinds of things. It's amazing how God is working here. So they reference, the witnesses reference Leah and Rachel. They say, hey, may your house be like Leah and Rachel, who God filled the house of Israel with. So what they're saying is, hey, um, Boaz and Moabite Ruth, May you carry on the lineage of our forefathers, of the Jewish forefathers. Pay attention to what they're saying. This isn't, this isn't a good Jewish girl. This is a Moabite woman. The story with Rachel and Leah uh, isn't, isn't G-rated. Like, it's not going to be on PBS for your kids to watch in the morning. This is, this is a big deal. But because they know the scope of the story, they see this story in light of the big story. And so there's no doubt in their mind that God can use Ruth. No doubt in their mind. Now, if they only knew this part of Ruth and they only know, knew certain parts of the Old Testament where the Moabite women seduced Israelite men, there's no way they're cheering this on. But they know more than that. It gets even better. Leah gives birth to these sons and has a son by the name of Judah. Um, Judah has daughters and then um, or has sons. They pass away, and Judah is left with daughters-in-law. Judah um, needs to carry on his family name. Tamar, one of his daughters-in-law, um, is about to be put to death because she hasn't brought forth any children. Tamar dresses up like a prostitute and tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her. It's in the Bible, Genesis 38. She gets pregnant with twins by the name of Perez and Zerah. Uh, again, firstborn is a big deal. And so they decide, hey, whichever of the twins is born first, whenever he, he comes out of the womb, we're going to tie a scarlet thread around his wrist. So um, Zerah does, puts his hand out, gets the hand tied on it, and then Perez pulls him back in. 
like, like brothers do. Pulls him back in, and then Perez is born first. So he becomes the firstborn and gets the birthright. More on that next week. And so they reference here, the witnesses say, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Because the witnesses know the scope of the character of God, not based on some experience they had, not based on uh, just some little blip on the radar, not because they knew the Ten Commandments, not because uh, they heard that God votes this way or does these things, but because they know the character of God. Ruth and Boaz fits right into what they know about God. He takes what the enemy meant for evil and he turns it for good. Now, the problem for us is we don't know the scope of the character of God. And because we don't, the darkest days of our life feel like an aberration to the character of God. But what if they're not? And what if you're never too far gone? What if God uses people like Tamar? What if God uses people like Jacob and Leah and Rachel? And what if God uses people like Abraham and Sarah? And what if God uses people like King David? And what if God uses people like Peter? And what if God uses people like you? And we're not too far gone. There's nothing that God can't redeem. And so when Boaz and Ruth show up in your life, you know what we do? We say, yes, and may the Lord bless your family because I've seen him do it. Not just today, but in the scope of his character. This is who God is. So do you see how important context is? Because if we don't have the context of a person, we misinterpret who they are. And if we don't have the context of scripture, we misinterpret what it means. But more importantly, if we don't have the context of God, then we misinterpret who he is. These witnesses knew the character of God. Now, you and I can't just download all this information, right? So this is where discipleship comes in. This is why it matters that we read the Bible. Not because you need to memorize something and regurgitate that to get a jewel in your crown at Awana. Not because of that. Not because you need to be smarter and know what to quote on social media. No, no, no. Because you need to know, I need to know the story so that we know the character of God. So that when the dark days hit, we aren't thrown off. And when success happens, we don't misinterpret. It's why. Like, this is why we read the Bible. This is why we study scriptures. It's why we have to take time and meditate on it. It's why we gather together. It's why this, why this, why the study and teaching of God's word will always be central to the church. Because of this, because this tells us the character of God. There are two ways that we often interpret circumstances that lead us to issues. And the first is through emotion. We often interpret our circumstances through the lens of emotion. Now, some of us are more gifted emotionally than others, and some aren't. But through emotion, the idea of, well, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel like what it should be. Whatever the feeling is. But scripture will always tell us. We have to be careful with trusting our hearts. 
but we often interpret our circumstances based on feeling. It makes me sad, it makes me happy. It doesn't feel like it should go this way. Well, do you see what happens when you begin to interpret circumstances based on feeling and how that leads you down a path? Now, if you grew up in church, you interpret feeling based on whatever you know about God, but if you misinterpret what you know about God and you use your feelings to justify that, you find yourself in all heaps of trouble. If these people would have interpreted this situation based on feeling, we don't have Ruth and Boaz. And we don't have their genealogy, which means today you and I, we're out of luck. But they don't interpret through emotion. It doesn't feel, what does it feel like? The second thing we do is we interpret based on experience. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't align with what I've experienced before. This church doesn't seem to feel like the same experience that I've had before. And so we have facts of experience that inform how we handle the moment today. I'm gonna suggest to you there's a third way in which we um, interpret circumstances, and that's through evidence. What's the evidence? Not what you're feeling, not what have you experienced, but let's begin with evidence. You know, I know what evidence I have that Genesis 50, 20 is true, that God takes what the enemy meant for evil and he turns it for good. You know where I start? I start in Genesis 25 and 27 and Genesis 38. And I start with the story of Joseph. That. Now, from that foundation, I can move into my experience. And my experience is also true to that. And from that then comes into feeling. But we begin with evidence. And the question for us today in the, the modern church today is, do you have the evidence? Do you have the evidence? It's why we hide God's word in our heart. Why we should know these stories. And I don't mean to guilt you, because I'm gonna be honest with you. I only know these stories because I had a week to study it. That's why. Like, I'm learning a lot of these stories in deep and rich ways. We gotta start somewhere. But we cannot interpret our days through our emotion and through our experience when we have the evidence of the character of God before us. Which is why what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And what is that based on? It should be based on evidence. If God can use Judah and Tamar and God can use Jacob and Rachel and Jacob and Leah and their maidservants, then don't for a second think God can't use you in your life and your history. And don't for a second think that who you are today changes what God has in store for you. There is a way out. You aren't counted out. God has plans in his providence for you. If you bow your heads and close your eyes with me today as we process through this. I don't think guilt is valuable in the house of God. I don't think it does what we want it to do. So I'm, I don't wanna guilt us into the study of God's word. But I wanna invite you into the greatest story ever told. And it's a historical account of the creator who actually knows what he's doing with what he's created. And there's nothing that gets through his hands that he hasn't first touched. And for those of us today who uh, can feel like Tamar, or you can feel like Judah, 
or you can feel like Abraham or Moses or David. The evidence is that God's not done. Maybe you have people in your life um, and you are judging them based on fragments of scripture instead of the narrative of the character of God. Can I challenge you today? What is the character of God based on his story? And the evidence is there that whoever you're judging and counted out, they're not counted out. May we be like the witnesses at the city gate, cheering on what God has brought together. Maybe you're here this morning and um, your life is jacked up. Like you, you're broken and you're hurting and you feel like if you walk through the doors of a church, the church will burn down right then. Uh, it's, we're still standing. And scripture is full of people just like you and me. And the difference between you and the people in this room is not that we're not broken and jacked up. The difference is simply that we've been saved by the grace of God. That's it. And I wanna invite you into that. So if you're here today and you feel like there's no hope for you and maybe you've played the game for 15 years, 20 years, I wanna invite you to true grace, to true fellowship with the creator. So if you're here this morning and that's you and you say, yeah, I wanna follow Jesus. I wanna know what that's like to be loved by God. Would you just courageously raise your hand that I might pray for you? I might pray for your soul and that you might also walk in that. Praise the Lord. So the, the journey there is no different depending on no matter where you've come from. Believe that you're a sinner. Confess it to the Lord and walk in his goodness. Walk under his lordship. Believe that he is who he says that he is. Now, how many of us here this morning would say, no, no, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I, gosh, I, I feel like I've, there's nothing left to offer. I've disqualified myself. And there's stories and pieces of your life based even on scripture. But it's a really jacked up view. And you would say, I think I've, I've spent most of my life feeling like I'm counted out. Do you raise your hand today and just say, yeah, I, I know my story. I know my past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, praise the Lord for you. People like you litter the pages of scripture. Not as villains, but as heroes of the faith. God, you are so good and you are so great. And I'm so sorry for the times that I've lived my life based on some kind of false, minute perspective of who you are. So I've lived defeated. I've lived broken. I've lived set uh, back. And oftentimes I've tried to prove myself in that instead of just trusting in your power. Would you forgive me for that where the misinterpretation of your character has led me in places I would never want to go? God, you've seen the hands. There are people here today who want to name you as Lord, who have said, I'm going to follow you. We praise the Lord for their salvation today. And there are people here today who may have been saved by you and yet are still walking in the bondage of a false narrative of your character. God, if you can use Tamar and you can use David and you can use Moses and Abraham and Jacob and Leah and Rachel, God, how dare we say you can't use us? 
but there's nothing that separates us from your love. Help us to walk in that today. Help us to treat other people in that way. I'm tired. I'm tired of the church being people that kick people down, when, kick people when they're already down. I hate it. May we cheer at the city gate that Boaz and Ruth have been married because we know that fits right in line with who you are and we can't wait to see what you do. May we be a church of witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.